Well, we sang already this morning, there is no one like you. And truly, how true is that, that there is no one like you? Uh, It says in Corinthians 15 that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And I thought maybe today after the Thanksgiving holiday, maybe we can just take a a brief break from uh, Daniel. We'll we'll pick it back up next week. I've already been working ahead on Daniel 8, and I think we can maybe take those in the next three Sundays, and then we'll turn the corner after Christmas, after a special passage on the birth of Christ into Daniel chapter 9. But I thought for this morning, if we could just come back maybe and focus on the Lord's table, and no no doubt it's been a busy weekend for you and for all of us, and maybe some of you are still suffering from a food coma, so I want to be sensitive to that, but maybe it's a time to think and, and reflect on the work of Christ. I was looking back, thinking in my own heart as a young boy growing up in Canoga Park and the church I had the privilege to go to, a very healthy church. I was reflecting on maybe this week that the Lord has given me such a love for the local church and such a love for you. And part of that comes because of the wonderful providence of God in my life to be at a healthy Bible teaching local church. And I was thinking back on the communion services and I remember at early as a teenager when the Lord got a hold of my heart and made me new and caused me to be born again when I was 14, that after that time of faith, uh, communion became a, a special place for me. And there were certain hymns that came back to my mind and to my heart. And one of those was a hymn by the man by the name of Philip Bliss. And it's one of the favorite hymns of mine. He wrote that hymn, Man of Sorrows. And maybe you remember that hymn if you've been in the faith for a little while. It goes, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to proclaim. And then it goes, Hallelujah. Do you remember? What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. And then this line. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then this stanza. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He was lifted up to die. It was finished is his cry. And then it said, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. That is just a great hymn. And I was thinking on that this week as I was so thankful, thankful mostly just for Christ and his crucifixion, his shed blood, his death on our behalf. And as I thought about it, that theme 
came to me in that stanza, in my place condemned he stood. In my place, as our substitute, if you will, condemned he stood. He stood as our substitute. And so I thought it might be helpful this morning to fix our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ as we prepare for the Lord's table. It is communion today. And if you will, it's always a text for us at Grace Church of the Valley. Open your Bible to Psalm 53. Excuse me, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I was thinking about What David Jackson read earlier, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. And if you just look back to Isaiah chapter 53, I'd like to read that chapter and then maybe just focus focus on a special portion at the end of that chapter. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, there's our hymn, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with him, uh, he, by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have sinned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Look down at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil among the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us bow in a word of prayer as we prepare to hear this word and partake of communion. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege to be here today. Father, we're so thankful to be here. Thankful to sing with one another. Thankful to talk with one another. 
thankful for the kids' voices that I can hear at the singing of our worship service as we began. And Father, truly, there is no one like you. So our prayer would be that we might see Jesus, that his word might speak to us, that for the believer you might remind us of our high standing before you. That, Father, for those who are here who don't know you, that you would be sovereign to open their eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in my place condemned he stood. Father, we're in need of you. Would it be that you turn our hearts to focus on Christ this Lord's day as we prepare for worship? May we cry out in thankfulness and worship as we see his death. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, in Isaiah 53, as you know, it provides us a wonderful portrait of the suffering servant our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 53, next to Psalm 110, it is the most cited passage in the New Testament Scripture. So as we turn to this, um, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53 rivals Psalm 110, but even maybe beyond Psalm Uh, 110, there are more allusions to Isaiah 53 in the New Testament than any other passage in the Old Testament. And so we know it as Isaiah 53, the New Testament writers certainly knew of it as well. Now just a, a couple things as we look into this passage. In Isaiah, Christ is the suffering servant. And You know that, but sometimes the servant in Isaiah is the nation of Israel. But but clearly, as we set our minds on Isaiah 53, we have a prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. I call it a prophecy because as you think about it and you read it and you hear it, it is a prophecy. And it's not a prophecy about the nation. It's a prophecy about the intricacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just glance down at 53.12. I will divide him... It's not a nation, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. It's obviously referring to the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, that is not a description of Israel as a nation. It is of Christ Jesus. It is unmistakable. Do you remember in the New Testament when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 as he was on the road to Gaza? There, Philip inquired about Isaiah 53. And remember when he came up into the chariot, he said, about whom I ask you, Does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him about the good news of Jesus. 
So Isaiah 53 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. As you set your eyes in Isaiah 53, it actually begins back in Isaiah 52. Because in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, down through Isaiah 53, there are five stanzas. In fact, you remember where it says in 52, 14, after his exaltation in 13, 52, 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, it says there, human assemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He would suffer greatly. And so from 52.13 begins these five stanzas. And I would like to just briefly focus on one of those stanzas for you. It is the fifth stanza, and it is in chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. It is deep, it is rich, it is spectacular, but maybe just for clarity's sake, let me highlight just two roles or two truths in Christ's role as the suffering servant that reveals the beauty and wonders of our glorious Savior. I think my heart is to see that phrase of that hymn, in my place, condemned he stood. These two truths are the words substitution, number one, and then number two, justification. And maybe just so that you're not spectating with me, you're not, you're in the hearing of the word of God. Maybe if you're taking notes, you could write across the top, my substitution, and maybe you could write my justification, okay? And that will lead us directly into the Lord's table. The first word that we'll highlight by his suffering and death is the word for substitution, substitution. Look again at the text. Amazingly, in verse 10, that though our Lord would suffer, it was the will of the Lord, God, to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, here's the phrase for us, makes an offering for guilt. That's the word we're highlighting here. Makes an offering for guilt. Or maybe in the NASB, I think it says, makes an offering for sin. The guilt offering or the sin offering was to atone for sin. And, and you see in this phrase there in verse 10, the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, a sin offering. In other words, just as you think back into the Old Testament that we'll speak of in a moment, in the New Testament, you remember when John the Baptist laid his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he said in John 1.29, behold, the Lamb of who? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So even as you look here, this servant 
is making an offering for guilt or an offering for sin. And in the New Testament, Jesus is likened to the Lamb of God. I mean, the beautiful truth of Scripture is that Christ, your substitute, you could say my substitute, takes away your sin. In this is, is the thought here, is that Christ took your place to bear your judgment, to bear your penalty, even though you never, even though he never sinned. I mean, you begin to think of this language here of offering and penalty and sin and guilt. The idea of a penalty uh, being induced because of sin takes into the realm takes us into the realm of a law court, takes us into the world of crime and punishment. Before the judge, the guilty party is delivered a penalty for their crime, whether it's a fine, whether it's a prison sentence, or even depending on the jurisdiction, it might even be the death penalty. Now, the question would come maybe from you is, does our sin warrant a penalty? And the answer, of course, is yes. Why? Well, because God is the judge of all the earth. It says very clearly in the scripture that he will not leave the guilty, what? Unpunished. Now, you might even ask the question as we are bearing in mind the work of Christ, that first he is our substitution, is why do we need a substitute for sin? And I believe we know that, that it says, does Paul in Romans, that all have, what, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned, and that's the theme of Romans 1 through 3. We know in Romans 6, in 23, I believe it is, that the wages of sin is what? It's death. And I thought just for a moment, maybe we fail to see the glory of the beauty of the Savior because we fail sometimes even for believers to understand sin. What is, just for a moment here, sin? One set of sin that God hates sin, that we know. All sin, beloved, as we know, is abominable to God. His eyes, the prophet Habakkuk said in 1.13, are too pure to approve evil. It says there in Habakkuk 1 that he cannot look on wickedness with favor. In other words, God is so holy in his nature that he's so pure that he can't even look upon wickedness with any sense of favor. Isaiah 6 earlier in this book said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And the penalty of that sin, our sin, even we were conceived in sin, is death. 
And it's not just big sins. Even the smallest sin is worthy of the same penalty, is it not? Do you remember in the book of James when we exposited through that? It says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. It doesn't take massive sin to be a sinner. We're conceived in sin. And then if we just stumble in one point, there's our word, we become guilty of all. And so here, I think of my own life when the Lord converted me. I think up until he converted me, I actually thought I was a very nice young man. I knew I was different from those who I went to junior high with. And if you asked me, what did I think of myself Uh, 13 and 14, I would say I was a very good young man until I was reduced and brought to my knees to see that just one sin would make me guilty of all. Sin actually degrades a person's nobility. Sin stains the soul. Sin darkens the mind. In fact, sin makes us worse than animals because animals cannot sin. Sin pollutes us, sin stains the soul, sin defiles us, and all sin is loathsome in God's sight. In fact, Scripture calls sin in the book of James filthiness. Sin in Proverbs 26, sin in 2 Peter chapter 2 is compared to vomit, and sinners are like the dogs that lick it. Sin is called mire. And sinners are the swine who swallow, who wallow, excuse me, in it. Second Peter 2.22. Sin is likened to a putrefying corpse. Sinners are the tombs that contain uh, the stench and foulness. Matthew 23.27. Sin has turned humanity into a very polluted race. And beloved, I think we know when we think about sin, as we think about Christ as our substitute, the consequences of sin are not small. They're staggering. Even as I read this, they're staggering. Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into what? Hell, Matthew 5.30. And it's not just that sin is external in nature. Certainly, we're well aware that there's sinful acts. But it is out of the heart Jesus said that come the evil thoughts, the murders, the adulteries, the fornications, the thefts, the false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So I'm just thinking about myself back in junior high, thinking I'm okay. Because maybe externally, I wasn't like some of the other people. But internally, where God knows the heart and the evil thoughts come from the heart, we're all corrupted before God. In fact, in 1 John 3, 4, sin is rebellion against God himself. Later in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, it describes sinners as rebellious children who open wide their mouths and stick out their tongues against God. In fact, what sin does is it seeks to dethrone God. It seeks to usurp God. It seeks to place self 
on the throne and all sin is pride. I mean, initially, before Christ and sometimes in Christ, we love our sin. Yet because... But because we know ourselves instinctively that we are guilty before God, we inevitably attempt to camouflage or disavow our own sinfulness. We do that by lying to others, even lying to those who are closest to us. We hide in self-defensive mechanisms. We tell ourselves that God is loving, that he understands us. In fact, I was watching one of the football games on Thursday. They're just kind of on all day, aren't they? And I was watching one, and I was struck not by the game, but by the commercial. And I thought, what is this? It wasn't a foul commercial. I just thought, it looked like they were diagnosing some aspect of life and fallenness, and I couldn't track it until the end, and the ad came up. Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us. And I don't think I take that well. It's, it was almost as though he gets all of our struggles. And so come to Jesus who can become a genie for you and fix all your problems. But sin is an insidious thing. And it isn't only expressed in overt acts. Sin comes out in sinful attitudes. It shows itself in sinful dispositions, sinful desires, and a sinful heart. And sometimes those heart issues are clearly as a stench as the actions that they produce. Jesus said anger is as sinful as murder. Lust is tantamount, he said in the book of Matthew, to adultery. I mean, the greatest of God's laws to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So we might say that lack of a love for God is the epitome of all sin. I mean, the heart of sin is a failure to glorify God. The heart of sin, at least in Romans 1.21, is a failure to give thanks to him. Sin is ultimately a rebellion to submit to God's lordship. It is not a minor defect. One said it is rather a destructive and disfiguring cancer. But beloved, here is the glory of the gospel. Jesus, in my place condemned, he stood. Jesus, as we move to the Lord's table in just a second, took the full punishment for your sin. He was a substitute in your place. That's the thought here. He became a guilt offering. He became a sin offering. He became your substitute for your sin. You remember in the Old Testament when atonement was being made for the sins of a nation. Just go back into that image. The priest would lay his hands on the, on the sacrifice. And thus as he laid his hands on that lamb or that animal that was slain, he would cover the sins of the nation by trans those sins, if you will, to the sacrificial lamb. 
In fact, it was the violent death of the animal that signified the penalty human beings deserve for their sin. It was transferred for the nation at the day of atonement onto all those sacrifices. Now glance your eyes at the text. Think of Jesus Christ as your substitute in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. I love that. He has carried, verse 4, your or our sorrows. Verse 5, look at it there. He was pierced for your transgressions. He says our, but yours. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought peace. And then this, by his wounds, we are healed. I mean, beloved, in simple terms, the penalty due us fell on Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. In fact, one has said that every kind of wound, wound known to medical science could be found in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was wounded that we might be healed. He was crushed on the cross for your iniquities. So just in a moment as I, we pass the bread and the cup, you're recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ was your substitute. In the miracle of all miracles, in the one who was mighty God, in the one who spoke the world into existence, he came down and took on flesh, was made in the likeness of man, and went to the cross for you. He bore your griefs. He carried your sorrows. He was pierced, if you will, for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. It fell on Christ. In fact, look at that famous statement in verse 6. All, not a few, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, very clearly substitution, was, and the Lord has laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. He was your substitute. In fact, Isaiah and the prophet keeps going. Look, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Here it is again. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, and then here it is, stricken for the transgression of my people. Again, there's the thought of substitution. 
He is like a lamb that is led to slaughter. He's the substitute lamb. He is stricken for the transgression of my people. He's your substitute. Look at verse 11 here, where it says at the end of verse 11, where it says that he shall bear their, what? Iniquities. He stood in your place. You and I, who should have had the wrath poured out, the wrath of God poured out upon us. Jesus Christ is the great substitute on his death on the cross, stands in your place. In fact, look at verse 12 in the middle of 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He is our substitution on the cross. He not only died, but he shed his blood for us. I think you certainly know that God shows his own love toward us in Romans, is it 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. He died in your place. So listen, as we come to the communion table, as you take of the bread, you're thanking him for the death on your behalf. You're thanking him that the one who was infinitely holy, the one who was infinitely pure, the one who was in Trinitarian fellowship from all time comes down and died for you. The sinless one died for sinners. The one who should have had wrath poured out as us and yet the sinless one comes down like a lamb that has led to, sh to slaughter and he dies for you. First Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. He bore our sins. He bore your sins as what? As a substitutionary sacrifice for the atonement for you. In fact, Colossians says we were dead in our trespasses, the uncircumcision of our flesh, and God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions by canceling the debt, the record of death, debt that stood against us. He did all that for you. He's our substitute. Amazing. Spurgeon, maybe in Spurgeon-esque language, said, see the foundational truth of Christianity, the rock on which our hopes are built. It is the only hope of the sinner. He called it the great transaction, the great substitution, the great lifting of sin from the sinner to the sinner's surety. The punishment of the surety instead of the sinner. The pouring out of the vials of wrath which were due to the transgressor upon the head of the substitute. Spurgeon called it the greatest or the grandest transaction which ever took place on earth. The most wonderful sight that even hell ever beheld. And the most stupendous marvel that heaven itself ever executed. Jesus Christ made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 
Spurgeon said, a spotless savior stands in the room of guilty sinners. God lays upon the spotless savior the sin of the guilty so that he becomes in inexpressive language of the text, sin, end of quotes. Christ, our substitute, suffered in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, amen? Well, I mean, this is glorious, is it not? That's the first word, substitution. It's there in verse 10. His soul makes an offering for guilt. But there's a second grand truth, just briefly. It's the word justification. In the suffering servant, he justified us. You say, well, how so? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, that's the suffering servant, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, the father is satisfied with the son's death for the redeemed. It says, by the knowledge shall the righteous one, that would be my servant, Christ, Make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. The key there, if you want to underline it, is this. Make many to be accounted as righteous. That is, that phrase, the doctrine of justification, the declaration, if you will, of righteousness. The declaration where we no, no, no longer stand in our sin, but that God Almighty, through the work of his son, declares you righteous, declares you innocent. Now, there are two things that need to take place to be accounted as righteous. First, and you understand this, Sin must be taken away, okay? In other words, we have sin. We are sinners. And how do, we, how do we remove it? And we understand that by no works of the law shall anyone remove his sin. But look what it says there. It says in verse 11, where it says that he shall make the many to be accounted as righteousness. And in 11b, it says there, he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, here is the wonder and the beauty of the gospel, beloved, is that Jesus Christ not only stood in your place as your substitutes, but he is the very one who bears, if you will, your iniquities, you say, well, how did he do that? Look at verse 12 again, where it says there that he poured out his soul, verse 12, to death, and yet he bore the sin of many. He shed his blood for us. He removed your sins in his death. Look at it this way in Hebrews chapter nine. He, he has appeared once it says, for all, speaking of the first coming, to, at, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
So not only does he step in your place and become your substitute, but he puts away your sin by the sacrifice of himself. In fact, if you will, look over to Romans just for a second. In Romans chapter 3, let me show you the language here and we'll spend a moment there. In Romans chapter 3, it speaks of the work of Christ. And you know it in 3.23, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Now watch this. And are, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift. Stop there just for a second. You're justified. You say, well, what do you mean justified? Well, here, your sin had to be taken away, if you will. In other words, to stand in the presence of God, no one can stand in the presence of God because he is too holy and too pure to look on evil. So what God Almighty does is he declares you justified. It is a legal declaration of righteousness. He does this, look at verse 24, by his grace as a what? As a gift. In other words, there's nothing you can do for this. He takes away your sin. He gives that justification to you as a gift. In other words, you can't glory in that. But look how it comes to us in verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is. It's by his death that your sin is taken away. That's what it says in the scripture. But not only is this bound up in that word justification, sin's taken away. There's a second truth, and you know this, that as much as what our substitute does is stand in our place, then God Almighty declares us righteous, not in our own deeds, but through the death of Jesus Christ. But then he puts into your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that would be his perfect life, was imputed into your account. So that when you become a saved sinner, he not only removes your sin, so you stand before God, but you couldn't, as I mentioned before, get into his presence just by sins being taken away. You need something else to stand before him, and what you need is righteousness. And what we don't have is our own righteousness. We are sinners. We are condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of those sin is death. So you say, how do I get that righteousness? Well, it's added to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you know the heart of this scripture well. Stay in Romans. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin for us. You say, well, then he became a sinner. No, no, no. He stood in your place and took your penalty. He didn't become a sinner. He stood in your place and took your guilt. 
He stood in your place by his death on the cross and put away all your sins. So he made him who did not know sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he gives you the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the reformers called this the great exchange. Jesus died as your substitute and then he gave us his very own righteousness. Now, the thought would be, because I need to say this, is how does this transaction become yours? I mean, this is the most wonderful gift in all of the world. But how does it become yours? I mean, you would love to stand before God with your sin taken away, and you would love to stand before him as righteous in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he removes one thing, your sin. He adds the perfect righteousness of Christ into your account, but how does it become yours? Look at Romans 3. I'll show you in the text. Romans 3, it says in verse 22, it says the righteousness of God through what? Here it is. Faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. It comes to you, it comes to sinners through faith in Christ. Look down at 326 where it says there it was to show the righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, he's gonna be just to, to perform the penalty against sin. Jesus took that for you. And the justifier, the one who makes you righteous, it says there, of the one who has, there it is again, faith in Jesus. How this transaction becomes yours is through faith. Look down at 328. For we hold, Paul said there, that one is justified. Here it is. Here's the instrument. By faith, apart from the works of the law. In fact, look at verse 30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jewish people by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith. In other words, you're saved, both are, through faith in Christ. Look at 4.3 of Romans. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There's the verb, faith is the noun. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, here it is again, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What a wonderful truth. Here's two words, substitution, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon by his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. And then substitution, he takes away your sin by his death and shed blood on the cross and, that he, and then he puts righteousness into your account. Certainly, we've sang this year that wonderful hymn, It Is Well, and you've sung it before. 
But you remember that stanza, the bliss, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the, what, whole, is paid on the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Listen, we have a wonderful Savior at this time of Thanksgiving and at this time of Christmas. There could be a lot that you would be thankful for and more than Jesus just getting us. He sent his son as your substitute to stand in your place. If you're here as a believer this morning, you ought to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God, amen? You just ought to think, well, wait, wait. I'm a sinner. I was conceived in sin. I became a sinner in the womb and I became a sinner by choice and one sin is enough to cast me into hell. And yet he comes and dies in your place though he never sinned. He was a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And then when you bow your knee in faith to him, you say, well, well is that what I have to do? Yeah, bow your knee. You're either an arrogant young man in here who doesn't think you have to bow to anybody or you're gonna realize there's a king of kings and a lord of lords that you will bow to one day. And I'm pleading with you by the grace of God, by the spirit of God working in this, in this message, you need to bow your knee because he's king and you're not, because he's righteous and you're not, because he's the judge and you're not. And so I would plead with you to bow your knee if you've never done that. Maybe you've been here for years. Maybe you've been here much of your life as a child, but you need to bow your knee, not just the knee of your grandparents or great parents or your parents indeed, but you need to do that because you have sin and I have sin and we are not righteous in our own effort. I offer you Christ. I offer your sin, not in part, but the whole. It is paid on the cross and I bear it no more. Have you come to that place?